tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Oh, boy. Today's reading from Jonah, it, it is, it's, I call it one of the great kvetches of the scriptures. You know what kvetch means. It's a Yiddish word that means kvetch. Let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the light, the light of your Holy Spirit. Grant us the fire of your Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. <clears throat> Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Clearly, it's going to be one of those shows. I have to use the cough button early on, and I messed Good up the career. prayers. I remember a parishioner of mine who said his favorite part of the show was when I messed up the prayers. <sighs> I try. All right, let's go to the big book on the coffee table and the grand kvetch. To kvetch, in German it means to squeeze. In Yiddish it means to whine and complain. I suppose... <laughs> They're interchangeable. But moving along here, this is Jonah, the fourth chapter. And once again, let's discuss Jonah a bit. Jonah, there really was a prophet Jonah. He was from the northern kingdom, uh, and he lived around, oh, let's say 750 B.C. And the Assyrian Empire, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, I guess it's technically called, was was busy expanding. And it, it was really the first... Uh, empire, empire uh, that we know of, that that it was um, one ethnicity, one political entity taking over other political entities and ethnicities. And they developed uh, what we would call ethnic cleansing. They would take people out of a land and they would uh, force march them to another country and then they would take people from country B and force march them to country A, the idea being it to be taken from your land meant to be taken from your gods, which meant you lost your ethnic identity. And of course, conveniently, a lot of the people who you had just defeated died on the way. So they were, they were, they were kind of the Nazis of the ancient world. And Jonah had been told to go and preach in Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. It'd be like telling a Jewish rabbi in 1943 to go to Berlin and start street preaching on the corner, complete with your yarmulke and, and your talus. This is crazy. So Jonah got in a ship, and he went as far west as he could go to Tarshish, which is thought to have been somewhere in the western Mediterranean, maybe Spain. And, of course, Nineveh was east of where Jonah was living, northeast. So... Jonah fled from the Lord, and he realized you can't do that. And he got thrown into the sea, and he got spit up uh, uh, on on the land. And he didn't get spit up 
on the land near Nineveh. He just got spit up on the land after three days. Um, did this really happen? As I say, I have no idea. I was not there. Now, I I want. Well, I'll I'll diverge on that later. Let me let me take care of this reading. Well, finally, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. We read a second time, and and there really was a prophet Jonah. Jonah, son of I believe it's son of Amittai, seven fifty B.C. And the Assyrians uh, destroyed the northern kingdom and surrounded Jerusalem. Uh, actually, that's kind of an interesting diversion. Uh, this would have been about 720 B.C., and they deported uh, the citizens of of the northern kingdoms, and then they went on to surround Jerusalem. They took a number of cities in, in Judah, uh, but the Lord had said that he would deliver Jerusalem, and he did. Uh, there's a hint in Egyptian... Uh, 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 I don't know if you call it literature, but there are inscriptions in, in, in Egypt that seem to hint that some great thing, some plague had broken out among the soldiers uh, of, of the Assyrians because they fled. Uh, Jerusalem, they lifted the siege and went back to Assyria. And, and we read uh, in the uh, archives of Assyria, which many of which we have, that, that uh, uh, the king of Assyria brags that he has penned up uh, Hezekiah, like a bird, I think he mentions Hezekiah the king, has penned up Hezekiah uh, like a bird in a cage. In other words, he didn't succeed in capturing Jerusalem. He just was bragging about what he could brag about. So this this is history. This really happened. Now, did Jonah really happen? I don't know. Okay. Time, well, let me, let me, let me segue off of this. I got a question. I was with a group last night, a wonderful bunch of people from St. Paul of the Cross in Park Ridge, and someone who is a, a teacher of, of religion, uh, of, you know, the, the religious ed classes, asked me, uh, uh, how do you talk about Jonah in a way that, that kids who are in fifth and sixth grade don't lose respect for the scriptures? And you know what I would do? <clears throat> I would I always like to come around from behind on these questions and and. You know, grab them while they're not looking. I would start with the story of the boy who cried wolf. What? Yeah. When you're trying to explain stories that may be parables or, uh, um, you know, I don't know if, if the book of Jonah is history or parable. I wasn't there. It sounds like it was parable because we have found no archaeological or documentary evidence that at any point the Assyrians... Uh, had this this mass conversion to the God of Israel. But lack of evidence is not evidence of lack. So who knows? But it may be a parable. Well, that's that's then it's not true. Oh, no, it's very true. Let me tell you the story of the boy who cried wolf. There was a boy who was a shepherd, and he loved to get people all upset in town, and he would run into town saying, there's a wolf attacking the sheep, there's a wolf attacking the sheep, and they'd run out, and there was no wolf, and he would laugh he did this enough times so that when he would run into town crying there was a wolf, they would just get back to your sheep. Well, <clears throat> one day, there actually was a wolf. And the boy started crying, there's a wolf, there's a wolf. And everyone who heard him crying from where, the, where he was tending the sheep said, he's doing it again. The wolf ate the boy. Where, where did that happen? It's a story. And it conveys an important truth. <clears throat> there was no boy. There was no wolf. There was no village. 
These are, this is a story which con- conveys an important truth. That's a parable. Jesus told a wonderful story about uh, um, a, 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 a fellow who was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, he, and, and he was beat up and left for dead, and uh, uh, a Samaritan helped him. There was no Samaritan. There was no. You, know, you go to Israel, and they will show you, God willing, we can go there again soon, but you go to Israel, and they will show you the inn where the parable of the Good Samaritan didn't happen. See, that's the nature of parables. Emphasize when you're teaching religion to kids, emphasize that the Bible is not a book. It's a library. <clears throat> and you can go into a library and say, this library is wrong. Well, you'd say, which section is wrong? The history section, the science section, the poetry section? The one that's going to be most wrong is the science section. As soon as you publish a book in science, somebody makes a new discovery that makes the science book you've bought obsolete. The history section. You turn over a shovel somewhere and find evidence of something that contradicts something that everybody thought was so. The history section is going to be wrong. The poetry section is never wrong because poetry is a, a universal thing. I'm not big on poetry, but it... A poem that was beautiful in the year 100 is beautiful today. That, that the, the truest section, in a certain sense, of the library is the poetry and literature section. And so it is that the Bible is a library. It has history. It has law. It has uh, philosophy. It has parable. Um, <clears throat> and it's a book written by the Holy Spirit to share the truth of God. And sometimes that... That truth of God manifests itself in history. Sometimes it manifests itself in poetry. So just because something may be a parable doesn't mean it isn't valuable and important. So we don't know the history of what happened. There was a Jonah. There were Assyrians. Assyrians now are devout believers in Christ, and they worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whatever Jonah said to the uh, the the Ninevites, the Assyrians, well, eventually it took, and it took pretty good. They're devout. So that said, uh, uh, let's get back to the story. Well, this is Jonah, and uh, this is fascinating. Uh, um, Jonah was greatly displeased that the, that the Ninevites had repented. The Assyrians had repented. He was displeased that they'd repented became angry that God did not carry out the evil he threatened against Nineveh. He prayed, I, I beseech you, Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still in my own country? That's why I fled first to Tarshish. I didn't want the Assyrians to, to, to get to know you. I didn't want the Assyrians to be happy. There are enemies. I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God. Now, Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, do you have a reason to be angry? Well, Jonah left the city uh, for a place to the east of it, and he was waiting there to see what would happen. Oh, God's going to smite him, and when God smites you, you'll jolly well stay smoot. I think that's the perfect participle pendentive of smite. When the Lord provided a gourd plant, the gourd plant's a vine, it's got big leaves, a gourd plant. They grew up over Jonah's head. He's in this little hut, and he must not have built it very well. So the gourd plant gave him shade, and Jonah was happy. But God sent a worm the next day that attacked the plant, and it withered. And God sent a burning east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head till he became faint. And then Jonah says, I'd be better off dead than alive. 
God said to Jonah, have you reason to be angry over the plant? I have reason to be very angry, enough, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you're worried about a plant that costs you nothing, and you didn't even raise it. It came up one night and another night it perished. Shouldn't I be concerned with Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot distinguish their right hand from their left, not to mention the many cattle? God even worries about animals. I think that's, that's a vote in favor of doggy heaven. But we're not going there. Trust me on that. Um, <clears throat> third rail. I'm not going to doggy heaven. The voice in my head just reminded me. Third rail, doggy heaven. Moving along. Uh, Unless, um, of course, we want phone calls on. <laughs> don't call in on doggy heaven. We'll see when we get there. I personally think that though dogs do not have immortal souls, God doesn't forget the dogs just like he didn't forget the cows of Nineveh. But I'm not going there. All right, moving along. So uh, this is fascinating because this is who we are. You know, we don't want people <laughs> to, to, to find God sometimes. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the current unpleasantness, and I, I'm not going to get political about this. I will not do this. Um, the current situation, you know, uh, we have strong opinions about it one way or the other. I have a dear friend who said, you know what these, these people need? They need conversion. Oh, I thought they needed to get whopped upside the head. And I'm not saying which side needs whopping upside the head. But you get my drift? We don't want God to have mercy. This is the hardest thing about Christianity. I really believe this is the most challenging thing about Christianity. The absolute forgiveness won on the cross for us. You know, there are just some people who God shouldn't forgive. Well, who are those people? The people I'm mad at. Seriously. You know, you almost hesitate to say it. Uh, but I, I've used this. Uh, I, I'm not sure that Hitler was the worst person in history. Stalin might have been. Pol Pot might have been. Mao Zedong might have been. All four of them <clears throat> were pretty awful and responsible for human deaths in the tens and sometimes thousands, hundreds of thousands of millions. I mean, huge numbers of people died under Mao Zedong. He may qualify as the greatest mass murder in history. Uh, um, but, you know, Pol Pot, for, you know, evil per square inch, Pol Pot of Cambodia might, might, you know, he's in the running too, as of course Hitler and Stalin are. The idea that if any of those people had repented, genuinely repented in the last moment of their life, that God would forgive them, this idea is repugnant to us repugnant that God would forgive people who do not deserve forgiveness. Well, I don't deserve forgiveness. Of course, my, my, my crimes are, are, are the crimes and, and sins of a coward. I, I don't have the bravery to slaughter millions, but uh, uh, cowardice is, is, you know, we often mistake virtue for cowardice or cowardice for virtue. Uh, most of us are not moral. We simply live by enlightened self-interest. You know, uh, if you were, if I told you you'd never be caught and God wouldn't even be upset about it, what would you do? <laughs> you and I, I know what I'm, I might knock over a few banks and a few other things, you know, but fear of punishment is not virtue. Enlightened self-interest is not virtue. Uh, <clears throat> so my crimes and sins are, are the crimes of, and sins of a coward, whereas uh, people like Stalin, uh, he was definitely not a coward. Where's he going with this? Well, that's my point, that God can forgive me. He can forgive them. I want him to forgive me. I don't want them to forgive him. 
I'm like Jonah that way. I don't want my enemy to repent. I want my enemy to burn in hell. So this is a very difficult truth about the Christian gospel. The forgiveness of God for the sinner is absolutely without limit. Now, I firmly believe in the reality of of purgatory. Without the reality of purgatory, God wouldn't be just. But people I know who've died and lived to tell about it talk about experiencing all the pain they caused, which means someone like Mao Zedong or Pol Pot or any of that crowd, uh, even if they were to have repented, they would still experience the pain they caused. And so will I and so will you. Youch. All right, let's move on to the gospel. <laughs> the, this is uh, just an interesting thing about, about um, the gospel. Uh, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Well, that's kind of interesting. And he says something very simple. Father, hallowed be thy name. This is sort of an abbreviated version of the Our Father that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. Well, which one did Jesus say? He, You know, Jewish poetry, uh, Hebrew poetry, does repetitions. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in green pastures, near restful waters he leads me. So, in other words, green pastures, restful waters. They're, they're, in, they're in conjunction with each other. And the Our Father in Matthew is very poetic in the Hebrew sense. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The kingdom of God is where God is king. Uh, so uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, this, this measured kind of couplet thing is, I would suspect that if, if uh, you had to say, how did Jesus say it? Because Luke is a Gentile, most probably, that's the tradition. Matthew is a Jew, that's the tradition. He was Levi. And if I had to bet, I would say Jesus probably said said it the way Matthew wrote it down. And this is a more truncated version, uh, an abbreviated version, which essentially says the same thing. Well, that's that's which then the, then the Gospels aren't history. They are most certainly history. However, history is communicated in different ways for different purposes. Again, uh, we can be such fundamentalists, uh, the 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 this, the. Uh, cynics of Scripture are the literalists, and and I think that we need to avoid that. The Scriptures, which did Jesus say? Uh, if I had to put money on it, I bet he said it the way Matthew wrote it. Which did the Holy Spirit say? He said it both ways, because the the Bible is is uh, written by the Holy Spirit. That's why we revere it. Uh, it isn't, you know, Jesus said, "What's for dinner, Ma?" That's not in the Bible. Well, shouldn't it be? No. The Bible is the vocabulary of the Holy Spirit. That said, we're going to go to a break. We will come back with letters. Got to find the letters. Where did I put the letters? There they are. Okay. Oh, hearing someone say, uh, you know, if you compare yourself to someone else in church, you're wasting your time. Well, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than that guy in the third pew who doesn't even bathe. That kind of thing. 
The only person you should be comparing yourself to in the church is Jesus, and I come off pretty badly when I do that. So, uh, all right, let's go. Oh, 888-914-9149. Got lots of lines open, 888-914-9149. These people call in the last minute and ask me to write a doctorate. It's not going to happen. So call call early. (laughs) In the words of Chicago politics, call early, call often. Moving along, let's go to letters. Did we do the, there we are. All right. I, this isn't, I don't think this is a letter. It's sort of a phone call that came to me as a letter. Someone asked, is, does the Catholic Church have a policy regarding dogs in church and social events? No. <laughs> it's, your pastor might have one. The bishop might have one. But I know of no canon law that says, thou shalt not bring dogs into church. It has become quite vo- a vogue to bring uh, 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 service animals into church. If a person has a seeing-eye dog... Most certainly, that dog should be allowed in church. There's no canon law for canines. There's oh, that, oh, that, that was that lie. That was that's the voice in my head reminding me. There's no canon law for canines. Um, you know that that it can get a bit much. And if you have a yappy dog that you claim is a service dog, I wouldn't bring it into church. Um, so, but as far as I know, there's no overall policy in the Roman Catholic Church regarding animals. Remember, it's a tradition, though it's not in the Bible. That there were animals at the nativity. Moving along, all right. I should probably just um, let me let me get my my speaking of animals, my mouse. Okay, there it there it is. Oh, okay, I gotta click a delete button for that. I think one. I should get a mouse sound. A mouse every sound. time you <laughs> yeah, every yeah, time right. you look for your mouse. Yeah, yeah you should get a mouse sound. sound. That would be good. Do it. Sneak, sneak, sneak. <laughs> Okay, let's go to a letter. All right, let's see what do we got. Come on, work. All right. Okay, I was listening to your segment on repellent music in the Mass. If I may chime in with another point, volume matters. Oh, doesn't it? Too often the flowers of the music world amplify themselves to crush skulls and knock airplanes out of the sky. Objectively, the Mass makes heaven and earth or makes heaven present on earth. But unendurably loud music makes it seem more like hell. It's terrible to be in the real presence, uh, but want nothing more than to bug out while you still have a little hearing left. I don't know if I've shared my motto with you. I try to live by a few simple, simple ideas. One of them is food and music should not hurt. <laughs> I will never forget. Oh, dear. I was uh, late for a service. This was... Uh, you know, this was well, 30, 40 years ago, I think, but uh, there was an organist, uh, uh, not a regular organist, but an organist practicing on the church organ. And he, this organist, she's banging away at some Phantom of the Opera beast, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I was late. The church was open. I wasn't late for the service, but I was late to get things set up for some reason. I was late. Uh, and... Um, uh, I'm in the vestibule turning switches. I mean, this woman strides down the main aisle and says to me, when will you do something about that organist? The church was quite dark. When will you do something about that organist? There's a little girl in the front pew crying. <laughs> I thought that was wonderful. Yeah, music is very powerful. And, and uh, you know, the organ at church, this is really tough for organists because a lot of, well, they're not so much anymore, but a good organist is a great artist. And, Organ music in the Catholic Church, you should be able to leave a Catholic service. And if they ask you, was there organ being played, you should be able to say, you know, I didn't notice. 
the organ exists, and I think this is in the council documents, I don't know, uh, but the organ exists only to support the human voice. The early church, they didn't want any instruments in church at all because God had created the human voice, and that was the perfect instrument, and they didn't have accompanied music. Uh, yeah, read yeah, read the text, dear voice, in my head. This is from Sacrosanctum Concilium number 120. In the Latin church, the pipe organ is to be held in high esteem, for it's the traditional music instrument which adds a wonderful splendor to the church's ceremonies and powerfully lifts, lifts up man's mind to God and higher things, and it goes on. It doesn't mention that you shouldn't be able to hear it, though? <laughs> well, no, it does not mention that. That's probably for a different text. Well, it, I don't know if Vatican II got that yeah, the, into, the, into the weeds. Yes, but, but they allowed the organ in the, in the early church to support the human voice. It exists to support the voice. And the only decent organ music I've ever heard was in the Trappist Monastery in, Dubuque, in Piazza, Iowa. Uh, very simple and very supportive of the human voice. You should be able to leave a Catholic service, and if they ask you, was there organ music, you should be able to say, you know, I didn't notice. Uh, say that to an organist, and they'll, they'll have a they'll plots, as we say in Yiddish, which means to fall over. You know, I'm an artist. I got to demonstrate my art. <laughs> Well, you're making little girls cry in the front pew. All right. <laughs> I, I, I mean it. You know, that, 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 uh, uh, and, oh, I'm on the topic. Might as well do it. The louder the cantor sings into the microphone, the less the people sing. You know, the, the, sometimes we come up to a mic and we're, we're like this. Well, I, I probably, did I break any of our circuits if we're doing that? But, um, you know, you're not supposed to do that. I find that if the if the cantor, if there is a cantor, begins things, um, uh, uh, and then steps back, it helps the people sing. You, you modulate your voice. And as I said the other day, Father, Reverend Deacon, please, if you're going to sing, turn off your microphone because you take over the the singing. And Father. Your voice isn't quite as good as you think, nor is the deacons. So uh, I, I would I would uh, uh, moderate that. So ju just a thought. Remember my motto, food and music should not hurt. All right. Thanks, Don. I think we're on the same page with that. Better no music than bad music. Okay, let's see here. Um, okay, let's see here. That one was, seems to have been in Dutch. I don't think I'm going to worry it. All right. Our daughter, a practicing, this is from uh, uh, Frank. Our daughter, a practicing, practicing Catholic, wants to be confirmed. She's 20 years old but did not participate in instruction because of her health. Now that her health has somewhat improved, she can home study, but the parish has offered to provide a mentor who she can meet periodically. Uh, the book the parish proposes is Decision Point, which is geared 12 to 18-year-olds. The premise of the book seems to be if you can motivate the youth, they will want to be good Catholics. Thus, 90% of the book is devoted to motivation. 20% is devoted to content. Our daughter does not lack for motivation. Um, <clears throat> we bought the Navarre Bible New Testament for her. When she felt well enough, she would read a chapter and corresponding commentary out loud to me. Then she would ask questions till she understood. When I presented her with the online version of the Catholic uh, Catechism, of the, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, so she could compare content. She immediately had questions about what she was reading and wanted to know more. If she is to be confirmed any time in the near future, going through the whole Catechism is impractical. 
Could you suggest which parts of the catechism? What is the, the, the shorter version of the catechism? Do you remember that? The compendium? The compendium of the catechism of the Catholic Church. That's what I would recommend. Uh, I think there's another another the, uh, summary of the catechism, isn't there? Well, the compendium might be good. What else is there? Maybe the catechism for adults, I think there's one. Catechism for adults is another one. Look the, over those two. Uh, uh, it's it's That's what I would recommend, those those two, uh, with the help of the voice in my head. Go on. They, they have an online version on the USCCB's website. Of the, of the catechism of for the adults? Of the catechism for adults, yeah. Frank, go to that. Uh, the online version at the USCCB, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, cite uh, the online version of the Catechism of the Catholic Church for Adults. I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, we're going to get a link in the show notes for you, and God bless you, and God bless your daughter. I will keep you in my prayers that she makes continued improvement. One more one more letter at least here. Okay, this is uh, from Gwen. A Lutheran acquaintance of mine told a few of us how when she and her little daughter went up to receive communion, she asked the person distributing just to give her daughter a, a, a wafer. They only have communion once a month. Then the next time they had communion, her daughter had a little fit because her mother didn't ask for one again. Her comment was, just give her the body of Christ when she threw a fit. Do they really believe, as we do, that this is the body of Christ, not just a symbol? Well, I know what Martin Luther believed, that Martin Luther believed in something called uh, uh, consubstantiation. We believe in transubstantiation, that, that, um, uh, that there is no bread and wine on the altar after the— uh, after the consecration, that it becomes, perhaps in a way that we can't explain, but in a very real way, it becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. It becomes the whole Christ, as Dr. Dr. Scott Hahn is fond of saying. Um, they don't believe that. They believe that mixed in with bread and wine, Christ is somehow present in a physical way, and that when the service is over, it ceases, Christ ceases to be present in that bread and in that wine. They call that consubstantiation. In other words, it's it's with the, the bread and wine. And we believe that they don't have a valid apostolic succession anyway. So by our lights, the, the that bread and wine has not in any way become the body and blood of Christ. So uh, the, Martin Luther uh, was actually a Catholic priest, and he did— uh, have, well, I don't know how else to put a soft spot in his heart for many Catholic doctrines, such as the idea of hierarchy and devotion to the Blessed Mother, whom, uh, to whom he was quite devoted in some ways, uh, and to the idea of, of the real presence. But he modified them, and the, the Calvinist wing of the uh, Reformation said, no, these are just symbolic. They're, they're not real at all. And so that's kind of the, the history thereof. All right, let's see. I think we're going to go to a break. We will come back with a word of the day, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we're open for, for phone calls. Uh, uh, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. I'm a union man, and I work only 16 hours a day. A union man only works eight hours a day. I belong to two unions. Today, we'd like to thank Deborah, who's listening in California for donating her 1986 Volkswagen Jetta. 
You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. Me and Jesus got it all worked out. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. You know, a song like this, we think, yeah, me and Jesus. You know... Our evangelical friends are always talking about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We Catholics, we believe that. It's not a private relationship, but it's a personal relationship. Uh, and I think we need to remember that. This is about, it's about love. <laughs> I mean, you know, that I'm in a relationship with Jesus, and because I'm in a relationship with Jesus, I'm in a relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and with all of you. It, it's, uh, but it it is profoundly personal. I really believe that the life of the Christian, human life, but especially the life of the Christian, is meant to be a conversation with Christ. Our day should be filled with with. Uh, with an awareness that we are accompanied by saints and angels and above all by, by the Lord, by Christ. And uh, St. Paul says, pray always. Well, the conversation in my head is a conversation with Christ. And, you know, if you have never, <clears throat> I've never had this encounter with Christ, ask for it. I've never encountered the Holy Spirit. Ask for the Holy Spirit. Just ask. God is very generous that way. All right, let's go. Where are we going? The word of the day, aren't we? You know, I just, this is kind of where, oh, once again, my mouse. You got a mouse on you? Ah, there is the mouse. Where's the any key? No, there doesn't no, seem to be I, any any I, key. I, I, the any key's right there, but it's the mouse that I have the problem with. All right, let's go to the reading. You know, they, they, I don't know why they translated this way in this translation. Uh, at the end, Father, hallowed be your name. We ourselves forgive everyone in debt to us. Do not subject us to the final test. Um. I looked at final text test uh, um, and uh, uh, it doesn't say that does say we forgive everyone who owes us. We forgive everyone, you know, who has a debt to us, but it doesn't say final test. It's just same word as in the Matthew version, perasmon, which means to the test. Why would God test us? I remember someone saying, well, God never tests us. He most certainly does. You know, when people come to confession, um, uh, they, they, they can. They often confess the sins of their nearest and dearest. Bless me, Father. I got no sins, but my wife. She makes me drink. You know that that uh, I've I've said to people in the confessional. So you don't have any sins? Not really, Father. When that that happens, I try to help them find out that they do have a few sins. But uh, you know, why does God put us to the test? He knows what's in our hearts. The people we live with, I, the people I, uh, I, I'm close to could probably make a better confession for me than I do for myself. So why does God test us? So that I can see what's in me and either reject it or, God help me, accept it. You know, the, God puts us to the test so that we can know what is in our hearts. And when we say, may you not uh, force us into the test, may you not lead us into the test, uh, um, we're saying... We want to go along easily, Lord, and, and uh, uh, we, don't want, we don't want to have to be tested. Because the word for temptation and test is the exact same word in Greek. 
we want to confess our sins without doing it the hard way. Uh, but it's very interesting, and this is just an extra word of the day for the fun of it. In English, we say deliver us from evil. That's not what the text says. The problem is we translate the Our Father from Latin, which has no no articles. There's no uh or the in Latin. And so it, we end up, ancient Romans talked a little bit like caveman. <laughs> pass, pass plate. Food good. They wouldn't say the food is good. They'd say food good. They didn't have an article. Greek did. And so when you put the article in, it, it, it uh, makes it into a person. So it doesn't say deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. That's what the text says in both Matthew and Luke. And so we end the, the, we end the Our Father by being by a prayer to be delivered from the devil. And that's a good prayer to pray. All right, let us go to phones. You know, I'd be lost without a telephone. Hey, don't go away. I want to talk to you. Maria from Chandler, Arizona. What can I do for you, Maria? Hi, Father. I need uh, an advice. I'm doing my wheel right now. I have four kids, yes. three girls, and the last one is a boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a teenager. He's a rough boy. And I was last week I was thinking about Taking him, taking him out of my will, and uh, you know the money uh, inheritance. Um, and then I, did, uh, I was thinking about leaving uh, disinherit all, you know, my, all my kids and give it all to charities. But uh, I need an advice. I'm kind of confused if this will, is going to be a good idea to disinherit my kids. And well, the question, Maria, the question I would ask is, why do you want to do that? Why does he hurt my kids? Yeah. Are you mad at him? Uh, the little one, yeah, the boy. <laughs> I don't think that's a reason to disinherit him, to be mad at him. Huh? I don't think that's a reason to disinherit him as, as an act of uh, punishment. I, I really don't. If um, if you think he would misuse it or it would be bad for him, that would not be. Remember, to love is to will the good of another, and you certainly love your son, you may be mad at him. I, I quoted my mother the other night. I said, she would say, I love you, now I'm going to strangle you. She never did. She was a very loving woman. But uh, as an act of punishment, I would not make that my final gesture to my son, especially if he's young. I just, I can't advise you to do that. Uh, um, so I would really pray about it. And there are things, if you think that that if it's a substantial amount of money, uh, there are there are ways you can put it in a trust so it isn't all uh, immediately accessible to him. He won't spend the whole thing before he grows up. Uh, you can do that. Or you can say he doesn't inherit until he's a certain age. But I would certainly not make an act of revenge uh, my final gesture to one of my children. Uh, I think that's important, Maria. So I'll be praying for you and praying for wisdom. Again, we are open at 888-914-9149. Let's go to Kathleen from Montana. Kathleen, what can I do for you? Hi, Father. Thank you for taking my call. I have a question my grandson asked me. He said, if he goes to confession, and but he gets his venial sins, he, um, when he does the sign of the cross and blesses himself with holy water, or during the Mass, his venial sins are forgiven. Mm-hmm. So he wants to know why he should have to go to confession and confess venial sins. That's because I, he needs, I to, him he needs to hear them. The Father needs to hear. 
No, priest, I don't, I don't need to hear that kid sins. Uh, there's a priest who hears confessions really, really <clears throat> is aware uh, or understands the phrase boring is sin. I mean, you know, I heard someone say there's no such thing as original sin. They're all the same. But uh, I joke, I joke. But no, he needs to hear his sins. You know, you go to a father, I go to confession month after month. I confess the same sins. Good. Maybe one day you'll hear them yourself. Confession, to confess means to agree, to admit. And what are we agreeing with? God's judgment that I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. He, he, he's looking at his venial sins as they're not really that bad. They are. Every sin, even if it's a venial sin, is an offense against the infinite majesty of God. And the reason we confess even venial sins, even especially if they are persistent venial sins, uh, um, uh, is so that we can hear them. And hearing them, we can repent of them. And if he confesses, if he's got, let's say he's got a sin, let's, let, let's, let's pick a neutral sin, uh, you know, uh, uh, kicking a cat, which would be a terrible thing to do. But bless me, Father, I kicked the cat. You go, after maybe 10 times, you go into confession here, you kick the cat, you say, I really shouldn't kick the cat. You know, that, that we, I'm not advising anyone to kick a cat. Besides, they might bite. Um, Moving along here, that, that, that I confess my sins so that I can hear them. God doesn't need to hear them, and believe me, as a priest who hears confessions, I don't need to hear about sins. I've got enough of my own. But if I confess a sin long enough, I begin to realize it really is a sin. So the answer for your, 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 your son is the reason he should confess persistent venial sins is so that he can hear them and realize that they really are sins and repent of them. Does that help, Kathleen? It does. Thank you so much, Father. I appreciate it. You're welcome. I appreciate you. God bless. Well, thanks so much. Jennifer from Philadelphia, what can I do for you? Hi, Father Simon. Thanks for taking my call. I'm a big, big fan of yours, so thank you. Um, I have several family members that are conscious. I don't know if you probably are familiar with that, so of these little church groups that uh-huh. have church and like hotel conference rooms and things, oh, and yes. they're they're constantly they're getting a little more uh, difficult to deal with, shall I say? Yes. And saying, "Well, you got to leave the fake church and all that." And I really want them to come back home. It's just very difficult to mm-hmm. know how to evangelize or re-evangelize. Yep. Well, how would how would I I defend uh, the papacy? You know, throughout the history, there's a wonderful book by Mike Aquilina, uh, Good Pope, Bad Pope. We have had popes who have not been virtuous men. Well, see, they're, they're human and they're, you know, they're, why should I obey the pope? Because Jesus really established the papacy. Where does it say that in the Bible? Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Well, he was a little chip off the block, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's clear when Jesus says that, he's referring to a passage in Isaiah. Oh, I should look it up. Um, let's see. Uh, the, the, the keys of the kingdom. There was a hereditary uh, prime minister in Israel uh, who had the keys of the kingdom. Uh, and this was a, a, an office in the kingdom of David. Jesus reestablished the kingdom of David uh, in, in its spiritual reality. And he clearly appoints Peter to, to establish an office of, of prime minister of the kingdom. It's a biblical thing. 
they won't agree with you, but just say that's the history of it. That's that's objectively true. Let me find that passage for you. Okay, uh, let me see. Keys of the kingdom. Okay, there's the music, the appropriate music. Okay, enter. Okay. Oh, good grief. Now I can't find the mouse. Oh, there's the mouse. Okay, okay. Okay. Okay, Keys of the Kingdom, Wikipedia. Let's go to the Wikipedia article. Okay, it's not there. All right. Um, I know how I can find it. I'll look up Shebna because he was the prime minister. Shebna. All right. Ah, Shebna. Shebna was the royal steward. Okay. And we read about Shebna in, uh, uh, let's see here. Good grief. Good grief. Oh, it's in there. Uh, Shebna, <laughs> Shebna, keys. There's an, uh, okay. We read about it in Isaiah 22, 15 to 25. If you go to Isaiah in your Bible, 15 to 25, to Shebna, who is over the house. That in Hebrew was the I'll buy it. That was his name. I'll buy it. Not I will buy it, but I'll buy it over the house. Say what you have here and whom you have here. Uh, you've made a sepulcher for yourself. Uh, I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. And I will commit his responsibility, your responsibility to his hand. I shall uh, lay on his, the key of the house of David. I shall lay on his shoulder. This is what Jesus is referring to, the, 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 the steward of the house of, of David. It was a hereditary role. Uh, uh, Shebna had it. It was taken from the family of Shebna and given to the family of, uh, uh, of Eliakim. And that's pretty clear in the scripture that that's what Jesus is referring to. Jesus established uh, a, a, a vizier, a steward, and I'll buy it for, for the house of, of uh, for his, for the new house of David. That's not going to convince him. Just say, um, you know, this is what the Bible says, and you don't know the Bible very well, so I'm not going to argue with you about it. That's what I would say. You don't know the Bible very well. I haven't called in and argue with me. I'll argue with him. Does that help a little, <laughs> Jennifer? That does, Father Simon. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. Yes, that's Isaiah, the, the 22nd chapter, the 15th to the 25th verse, the story of the key of the house of David. And uh, uh, they're, they're keys of the house of Jesus, and and the the papacy are the keeper of those keys. So, and it's also uh, it, this is another little thing. Irenaeus, Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, in his in his treatise against heresies, Adversus Heresis, talks about all churches must be in communion with the Church of Rome. That's written in the year 180 A.D. The papacy was uh, the idea of the primacy of the, the Bishop of Rome was well established by, by 180 A.D. by a student who was a student of someone who was a student of St. John. So I think it's incontrovertible. The early Christians honored the papacy. We honor the papacy. It was established by God through the ministry of Peter. So I hope that helps. And Irenaeus of Lyon, you can go back and listen to all these Exciting, fun facts uh, on the podcast. <laughs> God bless, and thanks so much for calling in, Jennifer. Let's go to Thank you, Father. You're welcome. Let's go to Paul from Tampa, Florida. Are you with us, Paul? What can I do for you? Father Simon, real quick, prior to Jesus' incarnation, I know that when we die, we all meet the Lord face-to-face yes, yes. in judgment. Prior to his coming to earth, did all the people prior to him coming 
die and see him since he's eternal and and they would be rendered a judgment and then they may have to wait because you know he hadn't yet opened the gates of heaven well you know i i i kind of think something like that you know that that i always point out for god there's no time there's no space yeah. all moments are now all places are here and you know do are we judged immediately upon death or are we judged at the end of time and the answer to that is of course yes <laughs> that that uh, my my classmate Father Branken accuses me of the heresy of omnitemporality, which I invented. But uh, uh, I I think that that we cannot understand the nature of time after we leave this dimension. Uh, um, and I suspect that what purgatory part of purgatory is the transition from time to timelessness. But you know I wouldn't be at all surprised if when a person closes his eyes in death, he sort of projected into the last moment, uh, to the moment of judgment. So I think that's a possibility. So the idea of waiting, but on the other hand, in Scripture, we do have Christ. We read in 1 Peter, I believe the third chapter, that that uh, um, Jesus went to preach to the souls in bondage who had died before the flood, who had been unable to make covenant with the Lord. So that does seem to uh, indicate a time of or a, a period of waiting so it's hard to say, but but I, I just I think I can say with some security that the experience of time is different after we leave this dimension through death in our bodies. I don't know if that helps at all, uh, but I think that yeah, we 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 do not pass go, do not collect two hundred dollars. Uh, we go straight to the judgment. I wouldn't be at all surprised by that. Does that help a little? It does, and uh, I knew you'd have a theory. I appreciate it. <laughs> a theory, yes. What I don't know, I can always make up. So <laughs> thanks for calling in, Paul. God bless you. Let's go to Morgan from Frankfort, Illinois. Morgan, what can I do for you? Hello, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm a Roman Catholic religious education teacher. Yes. And we're about we're about to teach the first commandment, and it's saying that we should not have strange gods before us. I thought it was false gods. Well, um, let, let's look that up. Thou shalt not. Oh, we got 47. Thou shalt not have strange gods. Okay, we're looking it up. It's, oh, good grief. And, of course, it didn't register. Uh, the word the word there, the, oh, good grief. Praise God, I can't even find Good my mind. Oh, what I think it means, what I guess it means, probably the Hebrew word is foreign gods, the gods of the pagans. So that's probably what it means by strange. Uh, they were necessarily false gods, but they were the gods of strangers. That God, the Almighty God, had made covenant with Israel. Stick to the covenant. I think that's what it means. And if the voice in my head will remind me, I'll talk about it tomorrow. Stay tuned for Drew. Drew.